Good morning. I'd like to welcome you again to Munger Place. My name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here today, and I'm glad you're here. My first experience of forgiveness was when I was about five years old, and I had a neighbor who lived across the street from me. He was a few years older, probably about eight years old. And he had the peculiar habit of wanting to, I don't know if I can even say this in church, relieve himself out of doors. He'd pee outside against the fence, against the bushes, against the side of the house, wherever he could find some place to mark, I guess. And he was eight and I was five and I thought that was extremely adventurous and courageous and uh, attractive behavior and so I wanted to uh, practice it, particularly as he called it going fishing. That's what he referred to, it. I'm going to go fishing. Now, I was five, and I don't know why you'd have to only go fishing out of doors, and I decided to try it indoors. So I stood on the back of my parents' couch, couch in the living room, pants around my ankles, and just let her rip. I need to tell you, that was, again, my first experience with forgiveness. My folks were pretty ticked. But I have since forgiven them, and all is well. <laughs> I want to talk today about Forgiveness. And the reason we're picking this as an important topic is because it's contained in the Apostles' Creed. You just heard it recited in the video. We saw the Apostles' Creed as an ancient summary or syllabus of the Christian faith that goes way back to the second century in Rome. And it says things like you believe. If there was a basic list of beliefs, it says we believe in God. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. But then near the end of the Creed, it's this great phrase, and in the forgiveness of sins. One of the things the church believes is in the forgiveness of sins. Like so many other things, when it comes to the Christian life, it's easy to say that. But when you begin to, but when you begin to actually unpack that phrase, you realize it's not as simple as it sounds. In fact, I want to start, and I'll just lay my cards on the table. I believe forgiveness is impossible. I believe forgiveness is impossible. And to get there, we need to work through this story in Mark's gospel to explain why I believe that that's the case. Now, this is very early on Mark's gospel, but Jesus' renown has already gone ahead of him. It begins to be so desperate, in fact, that when he goes someplace, he's always met with a crowd. Which is why, if you notice, if you read Mark's gospel, you'll often find it saying, And Jesus rose very early in the morning while it was still dark to go and pray. Isn't it interesting that there's a connection between the work you can do and the silence and solitude you have. And if Jesus of Nazareth needed time in the morning to pray and to be still, how much more do you and I? In any case, Jesus comes back to Capernaum. He's at home again. It probably is where the apostle Peter lived in his house. And Jesus comes there and a crowd meets him. In fact, the crowd is gathered around the door and in the house so that it's even hard to reach Jesus if you weren't there first. And down the street come four men holding a mat, carrying a friend of theirs who is paralyzed. I just find it very interesting that the thing that these guys think to do for their friend is to bring him to Jesus. I wonder if that's something that you and I need to hear a little bit more. We don't need to understand how it's going to work. We don't need to know all the answers, but maybe God is just asking us, just bring your friends to me. Just bring your friends to me. So they do, but there's a problem, and the problem is, is that there's too many people there to get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. And so they do something very different, and to understand what happens, you have to know a little bit about architecture in first century Palestine. Most of the houses were built of mud bricks, and the way the roofs, they were one story, and they'd have a roof of a few uh, boards across, and then in the, between the gaps in the rafters, so to speak, was more of this 
mud pack that hardened and often was covered with some sort of turf or some other sort of plant. And people would use the roofs of their houses for sleeping and for other things. And often there was a ladder leaning on the outside of the house so folks could walk up to the roof and be up there. So these guys somehow figure out a way to get their paralyzed friends to the top of the house on the roof. And they bust through the ceiling and they lower their friend down right in the midst. And this is what Jesus says. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, verse 4, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. To which I assume the guy probably replied, That's not what I need. I can't walk. It sounds nice to say your sins are forgiven, but that's not the desperate need that I have. I'm here because I'm paralyzed. I wonder how often you and I confuse what our needs are. If I could get that job, if I could get into that marriage, if I could get out of that marriage, if I make this type of money, if my kids would go to this school, if my kids would get out of that school. I wonder how often we confuse what our needs are from what they really are. Maybe there's a word here just for us to think that the one who really knows our needs is the one who created us. So Jesus sees this paralyzed man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. But then something interesting happens. Now, in the last several years in our political culture, rival campaigns have often taken the the job of hiring somebody whose only job was to follow around their opponent with a video camera. And wherever that opponent goes, the person with the camera will record him or her. And then if it ever comes to be the case, which is almost always the case, the candidate says something foolish or unpopular, they have it on video and they can replay it over and over again. This has been very effective in different political campaigns. The same thing was happening here in the first century, except it wasn't with the video camera. It was with a touring group of teachers of the law, the Jewish authorities. And their job was to follow Jesus around, and if he said anything controversial or untoward, they could make a note of it and use it against him later. And this is exactly what happens here. Verse 6. Jesus says, your son, son, your sins are forgiven. And they say, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, what they are saying is, forgiveness is impossible. And I actually think they're right. I think they're right. Now, there are two sorts of people here today. There are some of us who are in need of receiving forgiveness because of the wrongs that we have committed. And there are others of us who need to give forgiveness because of the wrongs that others have committed against us. But I believe for both groups, forgiveness is impossible, and I want to explain that to you. On the one hand, the way forgiveness works is forgiveness can only happen without any excuse, without any justification. If you've been married, like me, you've probably had this interaction at some point. You'll be upset with your spouse. You'll get into an argument. Later on, you'll come back to your spouse and say, I'm sorry I lost my temper, but, and then you explain why you lost your temper. Do you do that? Yeah, I'm the only one here who does that, sure. (laughs) I think honesty is the first step. In any case, you justify your, your, your request for an apology by saying, well, it wasn't really your fault. I'm sorry this happened, but 
if you hadn't said that to me, if you hadn't done this, if, that's not really asking for forgiveness. See, true forgiveness means there can't be any excuses. I've used this example in church before, but I find it pertinent today. About a year ago, I was back here on a weeknight getting ready for a new members class. And a lady walked in the door and she needed money to put gas in her car to try to drive to Palestine, Texas. And I, I had about 10 minutes to what I had to be ready to go and I was doing other things. I didn't have time to mess with her and I was frustrated with her. I barely looked her in the eye and I didn't know what to do and I called my wife and said, Elaine, could you come over and take this lady to the gas station and give her some money? Which meant then Elaine was ticked at me because she was in the midst of giving our little son a bath and she had other things to do and so she came and was grumbling about it and put our little son in the car and he was grumbling about it and so they're a big grumbling family and they go over to the gas station across the street. And Elaine said there were some problems with her credit card and it took longer than she thought and so she got the lady on her way and shut the car door and was driving back home. And she said she felt God say to her and she said this has only happened to her about once or twice in her life. She really felt God speaking to her and say, you ask me for stuff all the time. The implication being, and you don't have time to at least treat one of your fellow creatures with respect. So I'm over here at church. I'm, I'm doing my business. I come home in the evening, and Elaine tells me that story. And when she gets to that phrase, you ask me for stuff all the time, I immediately knew I was wrong. The fancy church word was, I immediately was convicted of my sin. It's one of the few times in my life where I was really able to see myself as I really am. No excuses, no justification. I maybe will never see that woman again. Maybe I will. But I can tell you that I know that what happened that day is because of my interactions with her, because I treated her as less than a person, the moral fabric of the universe was ripped. Now, maybe not to the same degree as if I had committed mass murder or was enslaving people or keeping people in oppression, but my small actions that night, I know, ripped the moral fabric of the universe. And this is why forgiveness is impossible if you've committed wrong. Because you know there's no excuse for what you did. There's no way to make that right. There's no way you can atone for that. It doesn't matter if I see that lady every day for the rest of my life and buy her gas every time I see her. What happened at that time matters in the moral fabric of the universe. And so maybe you're here today and you've been carrying around guilt for a long time over sins you have committed. You, the, one of the reasons you have never felt forgiven is because you know it doesn't work that easily. You just can't ignore it. You just can't explain it away. You know you committed wrong and you know forgiveness is impossible. There's no way to make that right. Or maybe you're over here and you've been carrying around the wrong that somebody has done to you for years and years and years and you've been places and people have told you you need to forgive but you say it's not that easy I just can't ignore it and make it go away what happened was wrong and as much as I like to forgive I can't change what happened and maybe you've been carrying a weight for years and years and years knowing how difficult it is to forgive in fact, in some sense, I think it's fair to say that both those in need of forgiveness and those who need to give forgiveness find themselves carrying the same weight. For the first, it's the weight of guilt of the wrong that they committed. For the second group, it's the weight of the wrong. But either way, the weight is there. And so I, I think it's fair to say forgiveness is impossible. You can't explain it away 
can't make excuses. You can't try to forget it. You can't try somehow to call something bad good. It's there as a weight, and it's not going anywhere. This is why the teachers of the law are correct to say, this man is blaspheming. Nobody can forgive sins except God. In fact, rather than saying that forgiveness is impossible, what I really should say is forgiveness is impossible for us. But with God, all things are possible. So Jesus hears the complaint to the teachers of the law. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. No one apart from the creator himself can forgive sins. Nobody else can right the wrongs, the tears, and the moral fabric of the universe. But the claim that Jesus makes here when he says the same one who says sins are forgiven can say get up and walk is the claim to be God himself. And that's the claim that the Apostles' Creed teaches us to affirm. Now you have to understand, when Jesus says this to the teachers of the law, it sets in motion the things that will get him killed. In fact, the whole rest of Mark's gospel is Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem and walking to his death on the cross. In fact, the reason forgiveness is impossible for us is because forgiveness requires death. But the good news is that our God died to make forgiveness possible. In some mysterious way on the cross, Jesus carried the weight of the sins of the world. And he died and he rose again. And therefore, forgiveness is possible, but only through God. Now let's, let's be really practical here. What do you do when somebody doesn't want to be forgiven, is not remorseful, is not repentant? Maybe you're here today and you say, listen, that person who did that to me, they are not, they don't care. This is why the connection in the story is so important between forgiveness and healing. I believe forgiveness is possible if the other person even doesn't want to be forgiven, but I don't believe healing is. God's desire for his people is reconciliation, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 5, wholeness. And it may be the case that that person that you need to forgive is never going to ask for forgiveness, you can forgive and let the weight be taken away from you, but the relationship may never be reconciled. And you know that's true. There are certain people that you're never going to be able to talk to again, never have any interactions with again, because they can't grow from those mistakes that they've made. But either way, the good news of the gospel is that if you have been wronged against and you're carrying that weight with you, God can take that weight from you and let you be set free. I heard a story two weeks ago about a British soldier named Lomax who was in a POW camp in Burma and Thailand in World War II. It was fictionalized. These stories were fictionalized in the movie The Bridge Over the River Kwai. You've maybe seen that movie. This is the real life, and it was, it was an evil, hellish place to be. And this particular soldier, Lomax, had a particular, in the worst sense of the word, relationship with a Japanese guard who tortured him and beat him day after day. And Lomax said when the war was over 
and he was finally set free, he could have murdered that guard had he found him. And he carried around the weight of those wrongs for years and years and years. Until one day he realized that he had forgiven and the weight had been lifted from him. And through a miraculous circumstance, he was able to make contact with that Japanese soldier. And they met on the other side of the world as old men a few years ago. And the Japanese soldier said, I was wrong, forgive me. And Lomax was able to offer forgiveness. And there's reconciliation there. That's God's desire. That's why the connection between forgiveness and healing is so appropriate in this story. But even if that reconciliation doesn't come about, I believe forgiveness is still possible. I believe you don't need to carry that weight forever. Now, you may be here today, and the weight you're carrying is the weight of your own wrongs, the wrongs that you've committed. Maybe you need to hear again, or for the first time. On your own, you can never make that right. But on the cross, Jesus took that weight and he died and he's been raised to new life again. And God can remove the guilt of that from you. This is why the church talks about freedom. Paul says in Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free. Freedom is knowing that the weight you've been carrying around so long can be removed from you. And the weight you may be carrying is the weight of your own sins, or, or perhaps it's the weight of the sins others have done to you. But either way, it's a weight. And for some of us, we've been carrying it around for so long, it's become part of who we are. And we, we turn our backs, because we still have the weight on it, and our knees hurt at the end of the day, and our back gives out. But we still carry that weight. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, that weight can be taken from you. Forgiveness is impossible for us, but because of what God has first done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord, forgiveness is possible. Now, we have a, we call our small groups around here kitchen groups, and I have one that meets at my house on Wednesday nights. And this Wednesday we were talking about this issue, forgiveness, and we were talking it like up here, like 20,000 feet level. And then a person in my group said, my brother was murdered. And all of a sudden it became very real. Perhaps this is very real for you today. This is not an academic discussion. Forgiveness is a part of who you are. And he said, this, this person in my group said, my brother was murdered and over time I've been able to forgive. Forgiveness is not saying that what happened was right. This person will never say that. Forgiveness is not saying what happened was good. This person will never say it. Forgiveness is not necessarily thinking there aren't consequences to our actions and, there, and there's not a need to make things right. Forgiveness is having the weight of wrong removed from you. Imagine you're at the foot of a huge escalator. You may have been carrying around this weight for years. You can say, Andrew, I hear what you're saying. Forgiveness is not that easy for me. I've been in church. I've been praying. I just can't forgive. Maybe what you need to do today is take this weight and just throw it at the bottom of the escalator and let it be taken up. And I don't understand why God works the way God works. But it may be the case that that weight comes right back down. You've got to pick it up again. And you've got to do it again. Maybe it comes back down. And I don't know if it's going to take a couple of days, weeks, or decades. But maybe you just need to keep saying, Christ has set me free. 
whom the king has set free is free indeed. For freedom, freedom Christ has set us free. And you just keep telling yourself that and dropping that weight day after day after day. And when the church says we believe in forgiveness of sins, this is what we believe. We believe one day, whether the weight is the wrongs that you've committed or the wrongs that others have committed against you, you throw that weight at the bottom of the escalator and it's going to go up and it's not going to come back. Because Christ has carried the weight of the wrongs of the world to his death on the cross and he's raised to new life and that freedom is possible for all of us in Christ Jesus. And my prayer as a pastor in this congregation and in this neighborhood is that we be people who feel the new life and the lightness of being that comes from knowing because of what Christ has done, sins can be forgiven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may it be so. Amen.